This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, sacked Nadeem Sahawi, the chairman of the governing Conservative Party, for a serious breach of the ministerial code. Mr Sahawi, briefly Chancellor of the Exchequer last year, had admitted reaching a settlement with the authorities over previously unpaid tax, reportedly amounting to about £5 million, $6.2 million, including a penalty. He had described the error as careless and not deliberate. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, promised to take steps to strengthen settlement and exact a price from terrorists after seven people were shot dead near a synagogue in Jerusalem on Friday. Several lethal incidents have occurred in the past few days. On Thursday, Israeli troops killed nine Palestinians during a raid on Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank. And on Saturday, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded two Israelis. The Memphis Police Department disbanded its Scorpion unit after five of its officers were tied to the death of Tyree Nichols, an unarmed black man. The unit was a specialised group tasked with patrolling crime hotspots. Video footage showed Mr Nichols being beaten during a traffic stop on January 7th. He died three days later. The officers involved have been sacked and charged with second-degree murder. At least 41 people were killed when a bus crashed into a ravine in Pakistan's southwestern province of Baluchistan. Local authorities suspect that the driver had been speeding or had fallen asleep. Separately, a boat carrying a school trip capsized in the northwest of the country, killing at least 10 children. Russian missile strikes killed three people and wounded at least two in Kostyantinivka, a small city in eastern Ukraine, according to local officials. Separately, reports emerged of fierce fighting in the town of Vladar, also in the Donetsk region. On Friday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, described the situation at the front as extremely acute, especially in Donetsk. China will again issue visas to Japanese citizens wanting to visit the country. In January, as China reopened its borders, South Korea and Japan imposed restrictions on visitors coming from the country for fear of a COVID-19 outbreak. China responded by refusing to issue visas to citizens of either country. On January 27th, South Korea extended its restrictions until the end of February. Peter Pavel, a retired general, won the second round of the Czech Republic's presidential election, beating Andrej Babes, an oligarch and former prime minister. With nearly all ballots counted, Mr Pavel had more than 58% of the vote. The country's presidency is a largely ceremonial position, but Mr Pavel has been a strong supporter of NATO and providing aid for Ukraine. And word of the week. Blat. Russian for an economy of favours, meaning one based on contacts, cunning and petty bribery. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Pakistan's light in the tunnel. Pakistan's ailing economy may get a new lease on life this week. 
On Tuesday, a delegation from the International Monetary Fund arrives in Islamabad, the capital, for talks on resuming a bailout program suspended last year. This follows an announcement by Pakistan's central bank that it would stop depleting its foreign exchange reserves, now down to around $3.7 billion, barely enough for three weeks' imports to prop up the rupee. Pakistan badly needs the IMF's help. It has been teetering on the brink of default for months. Annual inflation rose to 24.5% in December. Businesses complain about goods piling up at the port in Karachi, with importers unable to get hold of enough dollars to pay for them. On January 23rd, a collapse of the power grid plunged the entire country into darkness. Political turmoil has stymied efforts to tackle the crisis. The coming days will show if things can still be turned around. Tunisian voters get another chance to shrug. What if you call an election and no one comes? Tunisia holds a parliamentary runoff on Sunday. The first round in December was desultory. Turnout was just 11%, far below the 43% of voters who showed up in 2019. Tunisians were unenthusiastic about their choices. Major parties decided to boycott the poll, leaving some districts with only one candidate or none at all. Just 21 candidates secured a majority. The parliament has 161 seats. Kais Saed, the authoritarian-minded president, shrugs off criticism of the vote. Since July 2021, when he suspended parliament, he has moved Tunisia towards one-man rule, sacking judges and arresting critics. He rammed through a new constitution last summer that weakened the legislature. Meanwhile, the economy is sinking. Inflation is forecast to average 11% this year. There are shortages of basic goods, from milk to medicine. Mr. Syed has no good ideas for fixing this, and his pliant new parliament is unlikely to be much help. Hockey looks for global relevance. Hockey, field hockey if you're North American, has much in common with football. Each team has 11 players fighting to propel a ball into the other side's goal. But in popularity, there is no comparison. Around 30 million people pick up a stick regularly. Hundreds of millions play football. Few will know their national teams, even in Belgium and Germany, whose representatives contest the Men's Hockey World Cup final on Sunday. One route for hockey to amass more popularity and cash runs through India. For years before and after independence, hockey was the country's most popular sport, and India was the game's superpower. But since then, it has fallen behind in the rankings. A successful national team could reignite interest. That may be a while yet. At this World Cup, it couldn't even make the quarterfinals. But it is slowly improving. At the last Olympics, India snatched a bronze medal. Wayne Thibault's Candy Art Wayne Thibault, who as a teenager in the 1930s, worked as an apprentice at Walt Disney Studios, 
painted sweet, cheery, ordinary things. The Americans' subjects ranged from ice cream cones to hot dogs, lipsticks, crayons, and sardines in a tin. Candy-colored and luminous, his canvases made everyday objects into marvels. On Sunday, the first solo exhibition of his work in the German-speaking world opens at the Foundation Baylor in Switzerland. In 2020, the year before he died, aged 101, his work began to fetch steep prices. A painting from 1962 of four pinball machines sold for $19.1 million, a record for the artist. In the following year, Toweling Off, 1968, his portrait of a tennis player, went for almost $8.5 million, roughly five times its expected price. Sweet indeed. Weekend Profile Olga Sukhanova, Russian Anti-Mobilization Activist Last weekend, Olga Sukhanova was heading to Moscow from her home in Samara near the border with Kazakhstan to deliver 700 letters written by disgruntled mothers of Russian soldiers to the prosecutor's office. But at an airport in Samara, she was detained, not for the first time, and warned she may be charged with, quote, discrediting the army. Ms. Sukhanova has become the face of protests against Vladimir Putin's mobilization of Russian troops, though she is also uncomfortably close to peddlers of conspiracies about the war. Ms. Sukhanova is a 46-year-old mother who says her son, who joined the army in July, faced pressure to deploy to Ukraine despite earlier assurances that he would not have to. An official says her son is serving inside Russia. After Mr. Putin announced a, quote, partial mobilization of recruits in September, Ms. Sukhanova formed the Council of Mothers and Wives, which campaigns for better conditions for troops. Russian authorities have tolerated some criticism of the army's incompetence in Ukraine, but there is little room for dissent in Mr. Putin's Russia. The government stifled opposition even before the invasion last February. Ms. Sukhanova's organization has become a vehicle for broader anger over the military mobilization, a stance that avoids a blatant anti-war message but puts authorities in an awkward position. To shut down the group would look bad, and Mr. Putin clearly recognizes the symbolic power of a soldier's mother. In November, he convened a televised meeting of women the Kremlin said were mothers of troops serving in Ukraine. All were sympathetic to the government. Ms. Sukhanova rebuked Mr. Putin for excluding her. The next month, she was stopped by police. They are afraid of us, she declared. This is not Ms. Sukhanova's first foray into politics. She once stood as a candidate for Volia, a party that was later banned. Its leader, Svetlana Lada Rus, is a spiritual healer and noted conspiracy theorist who once ran for president of Russia. Now, Ms. Sukhanova's activism is complicated by her ties to another organization affiliated with Ms. Lada Rus. The National Union of the Revival of Russia calls for the restoration of the Soviet Union and peddles anti-Semitic lies about the war's origins. Ms. Sukhanova's council distributes that group's conspiracy theories about COVID-19 vaccines. 
To confront Mr. Putin's regime, you must be either courageous or crazy. Ms. Sukhanova may be both. Quiz winners! Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners, chosen at random, were Alistair Brocky, Sterling, Scotland, Remzi Sylvia Mustafa, Krakow, Poland, Vincent H. Resch, El Cerrito, United States. They all gave the correct answers of Capri, Zephyr, Thunderbirds, Taurus, and Cortina d'Ampezzo. The theme is they are or were Ford car models. And visit the Espresso app for our new weekend crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Nellie Bly. To have a good brain, the stomach must be cared for. That's The World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening 